What's up, skeptics? I'm your host, Zoe McDaniel, and you're listening to Professional Skepticism. So today I wanted to do something in honor of spooky season, something a little funky and fun. So we are going to be talking about the history of lobotomies. And I thought this was interesting. We'll get to it um, as we go through kind of the timeline of everything. But the first website that I looked at was like, though rarely performed today, lobotomies, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, though rarely performed. so. I guess I was like, do they still perform these? I don't know. But I think you guys are going to like this topic. I enjoyed researching this topic, so let's get into it. You may be wondering, what exactly is a lobotomy? A lobotomy is a neurosurgical treatment, I'm putting air quotes for those who aren't watching live, for psychiatric disorders such as mental illnesses like, you know, depression, schizophrenia, or neurological disorders such as epilepsy. The surgery severs most of the connections to and from the brain's prefrontal cortex, and this is the anterior part of the frontal lobes of the brain. So this procedure was invented in 1935 by Portuguese neurologist Antonio Egas Moniz, and this is from Psych Central. He was inspired by the earlier work of Swiss psychiatrist Gottlieb Burkhardt, and I think I said that right. And he performed some of the earliest psychosurgeries during the 1880s. Basically, he was known for having removed parts of the brain in patients that were suffering from schizophrenia. Um, or at the time, I don't think they knew it was schizophrenia, but basically auditory hallucinations and other symptoms of what we now would classify as schizophrenia. So Burkhardt's procedures were pretty dangerous and crude. The results were mixed and not great. Um, but I don't want to like say it's okay, but I think that's kind of how a lot of our medical advancements have started is, you know, they started out a certain way, very like barbaric, and then they've progressed into what they are today. So I guess the way I'm looking at it is like, I guess you have to start somewhere. It's just really tragic for the people that had to be the ones who experienced that. All right. So lobotomies were originally called leucotomies, and they were later renamed to lobotomy by the American neurologist named Walter Jackson Freeman, who adopted the leucotomy procedure and then kind of tweaked it and modified it to make it what we now know as the lobotomy. He was the first person in the United States to actually perform a leucotomy slash lobotomy. So according to Psych Central, this is a quote, the earliest version of this procedure involved drilling holes in a patient's head and injecting ethanol into their brain to destroy the nerve connections. This was later refined into the prefrontal and the transorbital lobotomy, which usually involves an ice pick-like surgical tool called a leucotome. And I read somewhere that like in the original leucotomy process, there was a leucotome um, or something that was called something similar to that. In the modernized, I'm putting air quotes again, modernized lobotomy, 
they used something called an orbital, I think, or an, or a leucotome. So it was like the same name, but the tool was slightly different. So I just wanted to clarify that. So let's talk about the difference between the prefrontal, prefrontal lobotomy and the transorbital lobotomy. So the prefrontal lobotomy is like this. The surgeon drills holes in either side of the patient's skull and then uses the leucotome to manually sever the nerves between the frontal lobe and the other regions of the brain. And then in a transorbital lobotomy, this procedure works the same way, but instead of drilling holes in the side of the head, they go straight in through your eye sockets. Like in here, if you're watching, you can see me pointing, but if you're listening, it's like in the inner corners of your eyes. And that is, I think, the more popularized or well-known version that we see in pop culture and cinema today. Let's talk about the historical timeline. So I want to talk about when lobotomy started and where they wound up. So lobotomies were widely used from the late 1930s. Remember, they came out in 1935 through the early 1950s. And I have like a little anecdote, I guess, of the origin. So the true origin of the lobotomy procedure is slightly unclear. Um, Moniz and Yale neuroscientist John Fulton both claimed to have been originators of the procedure, and I'll tell you why. So this is Fulton's story, and I got this from Wikipedia, so I'm going to read you this quote. So according to Wikipedia, at the 1935 Congress of Neurology with Moniz in attendance, John Fulton and his junior colleague Carlisle Jacobson presented two chimpanzees named Becky and Lucy, and they had had frontal lobectomies, lobectomies, lobotomies, uh, leucotomies, all the same concept is what I'm talking about. And then they had subsequent changes in their behavior and their intellectual function. So according to Fulton's account of this Congress, they explained that before the surgery, both animals and especially Becky, she was more emotional of the two, and they were both known to exhibit, quote, frustrational behavior. That is, have tantrums, including like rolling on the floor, defecating, um, basically just having a temper tantrum, essentially. Like think of like a toddler who's having a meltdown. I think everyone has seen that. That's basically what these chimpanzees were doing it or were doing. And they were doing it because they were having like, I guess they were put in these situations where they could either do good or do do bad. And so if they had poor performance or they were doing bad in these tasks, they were not rewarded. And then they would have these meltdowns. So, like, it wasn't like they were just actively, like, acting bad. I think they just grabbed these two chimpanzees and they were like, are they acting good, acting bad? Is this a normal bad behavior? Are the other chimpanzees acting as bad if they have poor performance with these tasks? Um, And basically these two, they were like, let's try out the lobotomy on them. Following the surgical removal of their frontal lobes, the behavior of both Becky and... Lucy. I couldn't like think of it for a second. That's bad. My dad's cat's name is Lucy. Like I should be able to remember that. So Becky and Lucy underwent frontal lobe lobotomies. They had their parts of their frontal lobes removed, right? And Jacobson and this other doctor, John Fulton, were like, it seemed like these two chimpanzees had joined a quote, happiness cult. Like they suddenly were no longer having these ridiculous temper tantrums if they had poor performance, whatever. And during this Congress, like during the question and answer part after they had presented their findings to all these other neuroscientists of the time, Moniz inquired if this procedure could be applied to human subjects suffering from mental illness. 
And John Fulton was like, wow, that's like a horrible thought. Um, While possible in theory, it was surely, quote, too formidable an intervention to use on humans. So I just wanted to talk about this because I thought it was interesting that this was kind of the first example of a lobotomy, leucotomy, whatever you want to call it. Um, And it was being shared with the rest of the world. And Moniz was like, hmm, I'm intrigued by that. But like I said, before I started telling you about that, there's kind of some discrepancies between Moniz's story of where the lobotomy came from and John Fulton's story of where the lobotomy came from. So this is Moniz's side. They basically both wanted to be responsible or like credited for coming up with the procedure. So Moniz, this is a quote from Wikipedia as well. This is like his side of it. So a detailed body of neurological research had emerged at this time. And it suggested to Moniz and other neurologists and neurosurgeons that surgery on that part of the brain might yield significant personality changes in the mentally ill. So this like subject or um, study had been sent out. People are reading this and they're like, oh, like maybe we can do some sort of procedure to help people out with this, with their mental illnesses. And so Moniz stated that he had conceived of the concept of a lobotomy sometime before he actually went to this 1935 Congress. And he'd even told like his junior colleague about it. And they were like, oh, this could be something that maybe one day we could work on. But then when they go to this Congress, they see a similar procedure had been performed on chimpanzees with, I guess, successful results. They were like, oh, you know, maybe we can make this happen for humans. So I say all this to say that apparently a lot of neuroscientists at this time were considering frontal lobe, lobotomy, leucotomy type procedures for the same mental health issues at this time. Um, So the origin doesn't necessarily matter of who was really the first because it seems like there were a lot of really intelligent doctors of this time that were having these thoughts like, okay, maybe we can do this. Moniz is the first one who did it on humans. And I remember I I talked about the guy who inspired him. He was doing, you know, obviously similar psychosurgeries, but not the same lobotomy, not the same procedure on the frontal lobe. So Moniz did it first. I just wanted to talk about the two kind of like tea, I guess, in the like 1930s medical community and also the chimpanzees. Okay, so now that that's out of the way. So Moniz performed the leucotomy, which is what it originally the procedure was called, for the first time in November of 1935 in a Lisbon hospital. So the initial patients selected for the operation were provided to Moniz by the hospital director, and the patients were aged anywhere between 27 and 62 years old. Um, 12 were female, eight were male, nine of the patients were diagnosed with depression, six of them were diagnosed with schizophrenia, two with panic disorder, one each with mania, catatonia, and manic depression. This was interesting to me. I guess Moniz had gout in his hands and like hadn't really done the neurosurgery. Like I guess he was more of a neuroscientist and was like aware of the way the brain worked and like what might work and what might not work. But I don't think he was actually like trained in neurosurgery. So he's got gout. He's not trained in neurosurgery. This is according to Wikipedia. And he had his junior colleague who had, he had told about his lobotomy idea, I guess, years before actually perform the procedure on the patients. So the way that this went was he drilled holes in the patient's skull on either side and injected pure alcohol into the frontal lobe to destroy the tissue and the nerves. 
So typically the way this was done was there would be six lesions cut into each lobe. And then if they were dissatisfied with the results of how the patient came out, how they were acting, if their symptoms didn't change or not, they might perform several procedures on the same patient, producing multiple lesions in the left and right frontal lobes. So very invasive, very intense, and there were a lot of complications, and I'm about to tell you about some of those. So complications observed in each of these initial leukotomy patients included increased temperature, vomiting, bladder and bowel incontinence, diarrhea, ocular affections such as sosis and nystagmus, as well as psychological effects such as apathy, akinesia, lethargy, timing and local disorientation, kleptomania, and abnormal sensations of hunger. Apparently, a lot of people who had the early lobotomies would get like an huge increase in their appetite and actually gain a lot of weight. Um, So those are just some of the complications that I'm pretty sure everybody experienced um, to some degree. Like they didn't all have the same exact symptoms, but that's like what all of these first patients experienced. And there was 20 of them. So the outcome for these first 20 patients, like the results, like did the lobotomy work? Did it not? They reported that 35% improved significantly another 35% somewhat improved, and then the remaining 30% were unchanged. So I don't really know if I think that that is like super good. I'm also not in the medical field, so I don't know if this is how early procedure statistics go or not, but we'll see. So in 1936, Walter Jackson Freeman, who I mentioned at the beginning, is the person who renamed the procedure to the lobotomy. He became the first doctor to perform leucotomies and then lobotomies in the U.S. Moniz and Freeman both had mixed results in their patients. Both reported significant improvements in many patients, although many showed no improvement and some even had worse symptoms. So at first, doctors reacted very harshly to the idea of lobotomies, which I'm like, thumbs up to that. At a presentation of the results that Moniz had, This is a quote, the medical doctor who had supplied Moniz with the first set of patients for leucotomy for his own hospital in Lisbon attended the meeting and denounced the technique, declaring that the patients who had been returned to the care post-operatively were, quote, diminished and had experienced a degradation of personality. He also claimed that the changes Moniz observed in patients were more properly attributed to shock and brain trauma and argued that cerebral wounds, as were occasioned by the leucotomy, risked the later developments of meningitis, epilepsy, and brain abscesses. And that was from Wikipedia. So basically, he's like, I don't care if the symptoms were either improved or unchanged or whatever. These people are having other serious health effects caused by these lesions. However, Moniz still touted that 14 out of 20 of his patients had positive results, and by the early 1940s, people were claiming that the lobotomy was this, like, miracle cure for pretty much any mental illness, and this escalates, so we'll talk about that here in a little bit, but basically it was adopted into mainstream medicine in countries like Brazil, Cuba, Italy, Romania, the UK, and the United States. In 1945, Freeman modified the leucotomy into the lobotomy, and he created the transorbital lobotomy by introducing the ice pick. And this is the word I was thinking of earlier, the orbitoclast, the orbitoclast, or the leucotome, that's the ice pick. 
I'll probably post a picture of what that looks like on our Instagram. So what the way he decided that he was going to do this procedure was he would lift the eyelid, insert the ice pick into the eye, under the eyelid, and against the top of the eye socket. And a mallet was used to drive the orbitoclast, or the leukotome, through the thin layer of bone into the brain. And this, they basically would stick the ice pick in there and like wiggle it back and forth. And that was how they would sever the connections. So the reason that he came up with this modified version of the procedure was to make it simpler, quicker, and to leave no scars. Because the people who were receiving the, the lacotomies and the initial process, they would have scars from fucking hole being drilled into the side of their head. So this was, I guess, um, less invasive to some extent by going through the eye and there wouldn't be any marks left over afterwards. Another reason that he made this modification to the procedure was that he wanted hospitals that didn't have surgical facilities to be able to perform the procedure as needed. So instead of needing like anesthesia, facilities could simply administer electroshock therapy until their patients were unconscious which at this time was very common. So this wasn't like, which is funny. It's like, oh, you don't have like a a facility, but you just have electroshock therapy. Like, obviously it's a simpler thing than like performing surgery, but it's just nowadays hearing that it's like, holy shit. So this is where the term ice pick lobotomy came into play. And this also increased the number of lobotomies that were performed because it was now much easier. You didn't really need to be like a surgeon to just stick an ice pick into somebody's eye and wiggle it around. So I think Freeman's actual, I don't think I wrote this down, but I read this. So Freeman's colleague that he was working on the the lobotomies with was like disgusted with the fact that they had basically turned this really invasive procedure that was supposed to be very serious into something that was just like an office procedure. Like you could just like when you go to the doctor to like get a shot or something, it was like just so simple and accessible when it really shouldn't have been because like you're just going in there and fucking up somebody's brain. So in 1949, Moniz received the Nobel Prize in Medicine for inventing the leucotomy slash the lobotomy. And according to Wikipedia, there have been several calls for the Nobel Foundation to rescind this award. Um, apparently it has not done so and its website hosts an article defending lobotomy this is interesting to me. This is also on Wikipedia. This Wikipedia page is very interesting. I think it was written by somebody who lives in the UK because it was very eloquent. Not to say that like we can't be eloquent over here in the US, but just some of the verbiage and like the way things were spelled, um, but it had tons of citations. Definitely an interesting read if you want to go take a look at it. According to one 2013 research paper, roughly 60,000 lobotomies were performed in the United States and Europe in the two decades after the procedure was invented, according to Psych Central. So that's another good source to take a look at if you just want like a nice um, overview of the history of lobotomies. So you might be wondering, what's the point? So according to Psych Central, quote, Moniz thought that a physical malfunction in the brain caused symptoms like psychosis and mental health conditions such as depression. So he thought that if he severed the connections in the brain, that it would basically be like a reset, which sounds so silly. It's like it's like the idea of like turning something off and back on again. But like once you sever those connections, you can't fix that. So it's like you can't turn it back on again. So you're basically just shutting down a bunch of functions in the brain and hoping that it fixes things. This was accomplished 
at the expense of the person's personality and intellect. I thought that was a great way to explain that, and that was from Wikipedia. So the main reasons that the lobotomy was developed and performed was to cure mental health conditions, including schizophrenia and depression, to reduce agitation, anxiety, and excess emotion, and to address the problem of overcrowding in psychiatric institutions during the 1930s. So basically, there were so many people in the hospitals in the 1930s, but no one knew how to treat them. They were coming up with a bunch of different therapy uh, options, which I'm about to tell you about in a moment. But there was this common thought process that people that were mentally ill or um, mentally unwell of some form were incurable. Like they thought there was just something in the brain that was like just the way the brain was and that like they could relieve the symptoms, but it wasn't something they could cure. And just to let you guys know, Mental health medications, like psychotic medications, I feel like I'm not choosing the right word here. I can't think of what the psychoactive medications, um, they did not exist until the 1950s. So you'll notice the timeline I mentioned and laid out was from like 1935 to the early 1950s. That was kind of when, you know, like not Prozac, because that's not when Prozac came out, but things like that that were that are commonly used today, pills, medication for mental health issues, that was when they started to come out. So this is a quote, lobotomy was one of a series of radical and invasive physical therapies developed in Europe at this time that signaled a break with the psychiatric culture of therapeutic nihilism that had prevailed since the late 19th century. The new, quote, heroic physical therapies devised during this experimental era included malarial therapy, which was like they would literally give you malaria and then you would get a fever that would be like super high and you'd like break a sweat and then it would like supposedly like reset you again and like clear out all the symptoms. Um, There was deep sleep therapy and insulin shock therapy and cardiosol shock therapy, which all kind of result in the same thing where they would basically just put you into a coma or like put you to sleep for like days at a time, like weeks at a time. And they would be like, well, like, they're not awake to, like, experience the symptoms, so, like, they're fine, which is just so fucked. And a lot of people died this way, as you can imagine. And then, finally, electroconvulsive therapy, which we've all heard of. So electroshock therapy for a wide variety of things. So now let's talk about the effects of a lobotomy. Like, what happened to people after they had lobotomies? Because it varies greatly from patient to patient because every patient has a different mental health issue or like, you know, severity of it, degree, different symptoms. And this is why it was considered so highly controversial and still is considered so highly controversial today because you just had no idea how it was going to affect the patient. Some lucky patients did experience relief from their symptoms and they actually were discharged from facilities. So like, I guess that's (laughs) good Um, this was not the case for everybody. I am glad that it at least like, I guess, worked for some people. Um, others had worsening effects. So this includes mood swings, losing their ability to feel emotions, becoming apathetic and unengaged and the inability to concentrate. Um, many were stuporous, which meant like, um, almost just like not there, like their body could move around, but like they were just kind of like glossed over in the eyes. They were very confused incontinent. Seizures were very common, which is not surprising to me. Spontaneity, responsiveness, self-awareness, and self-control were 
incredibly reduced. Many patients were no longer able to do things independently. Many patients could no longer relate to others emotionally um, or intellectually. People claimed that the patients basically had this like overall detachment from society. Like they didn't understand their role in society. They couldn't even like comprehend their relationship to their family and friends anymore. They lacked emotional intelligence. Some became catatonic and a few even died and some committed suicide after their procedures. On average, there was a mortality rate of approximately 5% during the 1940s. Which for some reason I feel like there was, to me it just feels like that's a low number. Like I just feel like there should have been way more. Like you're literally sticking some, something in someone's brain and just like digging around. But anyway, so emphasis was put on the training of patients in the weeks and months following the surgery. So the idea was like, if you can train this person to behave a certain way while their mind is malleable and like still like fresh and they're recovering, then they'll have better success with long-term symptom relief and being able to function within society. According to Wikipedia, though, this is crazy. So this is a quote, Walter Freeman coined the term surgically induced childhood and used it constantly to refer to the results of lobotomy. The operation left people with a, quote, infantile personality, a period of maturation when, would then, <laughs> I can't read, a period of maturing would then, according to Friedman, lead to recovery. So basically, I saw this a lot in different sources. He, would, he was basically saying, like, when you give someone a lobotomy, you're, like, resorting them back to childlike behavior where you have to kind of, like, teach them how to act in social situations in order for them to develop into like a mature person. This is another quote from that same article. He described one 29-year-old woman as being, following a lobotomy, a quote, smiling, lazy, and satisfactory patient with the personality of an oyster who could not remember Freeman's name and endlessly poured coffee from an empty pot. When her parents had difficulty dealing with her behavior, Freeman advised a system of rewards, so rewards would be ice cream, and punishments, smacks. So I think that says a lot about how children were being treated back in the day, and I don't think that that's, like, uncommon today. Unfortunately, people still do that. Like, you know, here's some ice cream. Let me give you a spanking if you're acting bad. But, like, she's a grown woman, and I'm not saying that you should do that. I'm not saying that that is okay. Um, But, like, she's a grown woman, and her parents are watching her, like, absentmindedly pick up an empty coffee pot and like pour coffee into a cup that's not there like it's it's really sad this wasn't the case for everybody but I think this is um this trope of results is kind of what we see a lot in you know cinema and pop culture when we talk about lobotomies so there were obviously issues with lobotomies we're going to talk about some of the things that kind of shown shone shined a light on the crudeness the the barbarism that went into lobotomies and thankfully this kind of deterred people from continuing to do them so according to NPR Freeman was a showman and liked to shock his audience of doctors and nurses by performing two-handed lobotomies if you've watched ratchet this feels like that so he would hammering, he'd be like shoving ice picks into two, 
I'm sorry. I'm laughing. It's not funny. It's like one of those things where it's like when I'm saying it, I just feel so fucking crazy. I'm like, that is so insane. So he would use both of his hands at the same time and shove them into the eyes and like drag them back and forth and do the lobotomy. It's like just for the sheer like theatrical effect of it. In 1952, he performed 228 lobotomies in a two-week period in West Virginia alone. He lobotomized 25 women in a single day. So he really liked performing lobotomies, and it, it gets a little crazy. Like, the, I think he just, like, let it get to his head, for lack of a better term. I think he just felt, like, really cool for being the guy who, like, made lobotomies. But he started prescribing lobotomies for things that were not mental illness, such as severe headaches, migraines, and get this, postpartum depression. He was prescribing a lobotomy for a postpartum depression. So it just, that like breaks my heart because I just start thinking of all the children that were born and then immediately had their mothers taken from them. Like they didn't get to experience who their mother was. Maybe their mothers died. Like, most oftentimes, people were forever changed after these lobotomies. So it's really heartbreaking to hear that. I would have had a lobotomy probably. I have chronic migraines. I take an injection every single month because my migraines are so terrible. I would have been lobotomized. I don't know if that's why I would have been lobotomized. I'm sure I probably would have been like, people would be like, look at that crazy woman and gave me a lobotomy. But yeah, so he starts taking it to the extreme. Okay, so some more facts and issues that shone the light, shined the light. I don't know what the correct word is onto the horribleness of what it is to have a lobotomy. So more lobotomies were performed on women than on men. A 1951 study found that nearly 60% of American lobotomy patients were women, which isn't that much more. There are more women, I think, in the world than men. And limited data shows that 74% of lobotomies in Ontario or Ontario from 1948 to 1952 were performed on female patients. In Sweden and Japan, and I'm sure not just in Sweden and Japan, but this was something that I saw when I was researching, lobotomies were performed on problem children. So I'm just going to leave that there. I mean, that's really tragic. We'll actually talk about a problem child specifically who experienced a lobotomy. He's still alive today, so just let that sink in. According to Psych Central, some high-profile incidents helped turn public opinion against lobotomies. So Freeman, Dr. Freeman, this crazy man, gave President John F. Kennedy's sister, Rosemary, a lobotomy that left her permanently incapacitated. She was like in a facility for the rest of her life, and it's really unfortunate. Um, not a good look, Freeman. James Watts, who was Freeman's partner, and he had helped him perform the first U.S. lobotomy. And this is also the person that um, I mentioned earlier had become like disillusioned with the way that the lobotomy procedure was going. It's like, why is it so accessible? Why is everybody getting lobotomies now? Um, he was not happy with Freeman. At the time, medications like antipsychotics, that's the word I was looking for, and antidepressants, they had just started becoming like widely available. So he was publicly unhappy with um, Freeman and the lobotomy process. And I guess people were excited about antipsychotics and antidepressants, which is amazing. And I'm so happy that we have those today. And if you are on medication, take your meds and I love you. And also drink some water. 
1967, Freeman was finally fucking banned from performing any further lobotomies after one of his patients, Helen Mortensen, suffered a fatal brain hemorrhage after the procedure. And then finally, I thought this was weird. This is from Wikipedia. So in 1977, the U.S. Congress during the presidency of Jimmy Carter created the National Committee for the Protection of Human Subjects of Biomedical and Behavioral Research to investigate allegations that psychosurgery, including lobotomy techniques, was used to control minorities and restrain individual rights. The committee did conclude that some extremely ugh, some extremely limited and properly performed psychosurgery could have positive effects. So I guess people were like, oh my gosh, they're performing lobotomies and like doing mind control. And I guess this is like an early conspiracy theory. I don't know, like, I feel like I should probably know this, but I don't know when conspiracy theories became mainstream. I think like we've had touches of them throughout history. Um, but this seems like that could have maybe been a conspiracy theory back in the day. Like, they're performing lobotomies and doing mind control. I think what they were really doing was, like, taking away – I mean, I guess it is, like, you could argue. I could see why people would say that's, like, a form of mind control. But I feel like, if anything, it's taking away the person's ability to control their mind and doesn't necessarily guarantee that anyone else can control their mind. Because – Remember, these are people that are already, a lot of them are already institutionalized in mental health facilities, not being treated super well. People don't understand what's going on with them. So it's interesting. It's an interesting theory to think that people would be performing lobotomies as a way to control these people um, that already are kind of uncontrollable and then make them a little bit worse in a way. Um, but I guess when you apply it to controlling minorities and restraining individual rights, if you kind of layer in that sociological aspect to it I could I'm not saying that it makes sense but I, I guess I can see why people were getting scared I think the whole lobotomy process in general is just a terrifying thought and so I can understand why people were scared uh, but like I said they did conclude that there are some positive effects of psychosurgery so I guess like those special cases where people came out better for it or referencing other forms of psychosurgery and not necessarily the lobotomy or leucotomy, um, they could have positive effects. So let's talk about that guy that I was telling you about that was a problem child who received a lobotomy. His name is Howard Dully. He is 73 years old today. Not like today's his birthday, but like when I looked it up, he is still alive. And he was one of the youngest patients to receive an ice pick lobotomy from Dr. Freeman. And one of the last lobotomy patients that Dr. Freeman performed a lobotomy on. So this is a quote from Howard Dully. He said, I've always felt different. I've wondered if something's missing from my soul. I have no memory of the operation and never had the courage to ask my family about it. That's like really sad because he lived his whole life. He says at 56 years old was when he set out to like find out more about the procedure. Can you imagine? Like, I really want to talk to this guy. Um, his mother, his birth mother died at five years when he was five years old and his father remarried a woman, his new stepmother. And he says that she basically just hated him. Um, she went to Dr. Freeman and she said that her new stepson was savage-like and disobedient and basically just essentially a problem child. 
So, of course, Freeman suggests a lobotomy because that's what he does. And like I said earlier, it wasn't just Sweden and Japan performing on problem children. It seems like Freeman was also doing the same, and it may have happened in other places. So, doing some research, Howard Dulley found his medical records, which is crazy. I want to see them. So, this is a quote um, about Howard Dulley, like, from the medical records. So, it says that he doesn't react either to love or to punishment. He objects to going to bed, but then he sleeps well. He does a good deal of daydreaming, and when asked about it, he says, I don't know. He turns the room's lights on when there is broad sunlight outside. He sits quietly, grinning most of the time and offering nothing. So this is like the results of um, his lobotomy. So it's how he was acting after his lobotomy, very spacey. After the lobotomy, the stepmom was like, this is it, turned him over to the state. So he was institutionalized in facilities until he was like a grown man and able to be released out onto his own, which I thought this was so contradictory because the whole purpose supposedly of leucotomies and lobotomies was that we were decreasing the number of patients that were in mental health facilities and ideally trying to find ways to help them. Um, It seems like she took a perfectly normal child, had him lobotomized, and then put him in a facility. And so you may be wondering, like, where's dad? Like, what's dad doing? And like reading in it, it basically turns out like his stepmom took him to Dr. Freeman. He's like, we should do a lobotomy. She had to get dad's approval. And Dad basically said that the stepmom and Dr. Freeman were very convincing and they like kind of steamrolled him and they're like, this is going to help. Like this is going to be like a big change for him. He's going to be so much better off for doing this. Um, And in this article, I believe this was the NPR article, Howard Dulley did actually get to sit down with his father, who was like really freaking old and be like, dad, why did you give me a lobotomy? And that was basically what his dad said. He was like, well, I was like kind of pressured into doing it. And like, I always felt terrible of how it went. And so I just didn't talk about it, which I feel like is just a sign of the times, like fathers and sons, like not really being able to talk about serious things like that and open up about their feelings and like, you know, express regret and shame and love for one another. This is a quote from Dully again. So he says, I'll never know what I lost in those 10 minutes with Dr. Freeman and his ice pick. By some miracle, it didn't turn me into a zombie, crush my spirit, or kill me. But it did affect me deeply. Walter Freeman's operation was supposed to relieve suffering. In my case, it did just the opposite. Ever since my lobotomy, I've felt like a freak, ashamed. Heavy. It seems like I don't want to speak for him, but it does seem like he at least is like a fully functioning adult and like able to, you know, thankfully have most of what his life would have been like or like his personality because he's able to like be introspective about this and think like, wow, like who would I have been without this lobotomy? I feel like so many people I know and love would have been lobotomized if we were still doing this today. It's so crazy to think about. So today, this is a quote from Wikipedia. Overall, in the United States, approximately 40,000 people were lobotomized. In England, about 17,000 lobotomies were performed. And according to one estimate, in the three Nordic countries of Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, a combined figure of approximately 9,300 lobotomies were performed. Scandinavian hospitals lobotomized two and a half times as many people per capita as hospitals in the United States. That's a big number. 
So according to Psych Central, the lobotomy is still legal here in the United States and a portion of Europe, though they are rarely performed. I think it was one of those things where it was like, I guess because like it worked to some extent, they were like, well, we're, well, for some people, they they probably rationalized like maybe not making it completely illegal because it's just a medical procedure. Um, I guess like you could, instead of being like lobotomies are legal, you could uh, consider it like a form of torture or medical malpractice rather than just being like outlawing the specific procedure. Um, but yeah, so apparently they're legal. People don't do them anymore. It's considered like, you know, medieval medicine type vibes. Um, yeah, so that's crazy to think about. The lobotomy was banned in the Soviet Union in 1950, and then Japan and Germany followed suit pretty quickly after that. So I wanted to like talk slightly about some like more modern practices, I guess. So surgeons occasionally use a more refined type of psychosurgery called a cingulotomy in the place of a lobotomy, and the procedure involves targeting and altering specific areas of brain tissue. Some surgeons, this is crazy. I was like, what? So some surgeons may use a cingulotomy to treat obsessive compulsive disorder, aka OCD, that hasn't respond, responded to other treatments. Doctors also sometimes use it to treat chronic pain. I don't know exactly how the procedure works. Like I would be very shocked if it was like, you know, sticking an ice pick in your eye and moving it around. Um, but I think it's the same concept as like, you know, severing something in the prefrontal lobe or prefrontal cortex. According to Wikipedia, frontal lobe surgery, including lobotomy, is the second most common surgery for epilepsy to this day and usually done on one side of the brain, unlike lobotomies for psychiatric disorder, which were done on both sides of the brain. And again, it's 2022. I'm pretty sure it's probably like a much more um, refined and less invasive, less scary um, procedure. I'm not a doctor. I didn't look to see if that's necessarily the case, but there you go. So I have some examples of um, lobotomies in pop culture. Sorry, I had like a brain fart moment. Don't lobotomize me. So Robert Penn Warren's 1946 novel, All the King's Men, describes a lobotomy and portrays the surgeon as a repressed man who cannot change others with love, so he instead resorts to high-grade carpentry work. That's like air quotes around the high-grade carpentry work. That just means he would do carpentry on your brain with an ice pick through your eyeball. Tennessee Williams criticized lobotomy in his play Suddenly Last Summer of 1958 because it's sometimes inflicted on homosexuals to render them, quote, morally insane, or morally sane. So they would, they would lobotomize homosexuals to make them, quote, normal, if you will. In Ken Casey's 1962 novel One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is interesting because we were just talking about Ken Casey in the acid test episode, The Summer of Love, um, but in its 1975 film, <laughs> sorry, if you're watching this, I just made like the funniest face, um, just looking over at the camera making, or not the camera, the computer, making sure everything's going okay. Um, in the film adaptation, lobotomy is described as, quote, frontal lobe castration, a form of punishment and control after which, after which 
quote, there's nothing in the face, just like one of those store dummies, which is a mannequin if you didn't pick up on that. In one patient, quote, you can see by his eyes how they burned him out over there. His eyes are all smoked up and gray and deserted inside. So this is, um, I'm tying this back to Ratchet again. Somebody recently told me that I guess there's like a nurse ratchet in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which I have not read or watched, um, and I would like to. So feel free to correct me if you're if I'm wrong. But somebody, I was telling somebody about the show Ratchet, and they were like, I'm pretty sure that's like a spinoff because it sounds very familiar. They talk about lobotomies and there's a nurse ratchet. But that is a Netflix show, and there are very much lobotomies and electroshock therapy and like water therapy in that show. Um, I've talked about it on like three episodes at this point because it just keeps coming up in conversation, but I thought it was good. Don't know if there's ever going to be another season, but I'm probably going to rewatch it. Okay. In Sylvia Plath's 1963 novel, The Bell Jar, the protagonist reacts with horror to the quote, perpetual marble calm of a lobotomized young woman. Elliot Baker's 1964 novel and 1966 film version of Fine Madness portrays the dehumanizing lobotomy of a womanizing, quarrelsome poet who afterwards is just as aggressive as ever, and the surgeon is depicted as an inhumane crackpot. So I didn't know that, like, this, all the, this pop culture stuff is from Wikipedia. Um, I didn't know that crackpot was, like, a legit word in the dictionary. It basically just means, like, a crazy person. I just thought that was, like, Honestly, I thought calling someone a crackpot meant that they were like a crackhead, so I learned me something new there. In 1982, the biopic film, which, another thing, I always thought it was biopic, which I guess is more of like a science-y word, but the biopic film Francis depicts actress Frances Farmer, the subject of the film, undergoing transorbital lobotomy. And I think I saw that like, this isn't substantiated, like I don't think this actually happened to him or like... Maybe he's saying that it did, but I don't think anyone was able to prove that. And then finally, and I'm sure there's more after this, but this is the last one I have for you. The 2018 film The Mountain centers around lobotomization, its cultural significance in the context of 1950s America, and mid-century attitudes surrounding mental health in general. I kind of want to watch that. All right. That's all I have for you today. Um... That one was really interesting to research. There's a lot of very technical medical information and terminology that I could have included in here, but I can barely speak like basic English. So I was like, let me just spare all the skeptics because I know they don't want to fucking hear that shit. Yeah. So that is that. Some of my main sources were psychcentral.com, NPR, um, Wikipedia is like my fave. Y'all know this by now. Um, and I, whenever I do stuff from Wikipedia, I always make sure that it's one that has like tons of sources at the bottom and stuff like that. So I think we're good. Um, and there's some more that I'm going to throw into the show notes, but yeah, man, lobotomies, go get you one at Claire's. Oh, that's another thing, I guess, in pop culture. I feel like there's so many memes about getting lobotomies and stuff like that. I don't know. And it wasn't even that long ago. Like, that's what's so crazy about it. I'm really excited to see what happens in like the next 50 years of medical advancements like what are we doing today that then we're gonna look back at and be like holy shit why were we doing that that was so invasive and so barbaric like it's so crazy to see how quickly medicine can advance but okay I think that's it I hope you all have a very spooky Halloween if you're not already subscribe to the YouTube channel it's professional skepticism podcast on YouTube 
I'll be uploading shorts and weekly videos. And yeah, I really appreciate your views. Share it with your friends. Hit that subscribe button. Smash that like button. Leave me a comment. Y'all know what to do. Follow me at Profsket Podcast. That's at P-R-O-F-S-K-E-P Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. You can email me at professionalskepticismpodcast at gmail.com. You can sign up to be a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Profsket Podcast. And you can buy stickers at profsketpodcast.bigcartel.com. Um, check out the link tree in our bio on like Instagram and Twitter. It has all of this information. And I think that's it. I love you guys so much. Stay sus skeptics. Have a good week. Mwah.